This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Rachel Cantor. Her novels include A Highly Unlikely Scenario and Good on Paper. Cantor has lived and worked all over the world, including Azerbaijan, Zimbabwe, Laos, and Senegal. She spent her adolescence in Rome and Massachusetts. Her latest novel, Good on Paper, tells the story of Shira Green, a single mother co-parenting her daughter with her best friend, Ahmad. She is struggling in various temp jobs and then gets a call to translate a Nobel Prize-winning poet's work from Italian to English. In the process, she discovers translation may be impossible. We began the interview discussing the title, Good on Paper. Well, the title of the book is the title of one of the chapters, and actually it's not our original title. It's not even my original title. I had a lot of titles before settling on this one. The the title that I presented to my publisher, which is Melville House, was uh, Door Number Two, which I quite liked at the time, but uh, (laughs) it reminded me that (laughs) maybe the majority of my reading public might not even know what that referred to. Um, So together we came up with Good on Paper, which I quite like and and, and which has gotten a very nice response because it has has meaning, I think, on several levels. There's, There's the obvious idea of something being good on paper um, or that, I mean, that can be good on paper, which we assume is good and right, and yet there's an implied disconnect between what is good on paper and um, what's actually good on good in life, I guess. And this is not just uh, not just the men we fall in love with, or <laughs> maybe particularly the men we fall in love with, but also the jobs we take that we think are going to change everything, or the all the plans we have for our future, or even our feelings about the lives we live right now. Um, so that disconnect is, is implied in the title, and it's, it's a dimension of the book. Um, but there's also this very kind of, on a very literal level, there's this idea that um, so much of the book is concerned with paper. Um, Shira's dreams and her understandings of what she wants for herself and her family, they're all on paper. It's not just a metaphor. It's actually literal. You know, she has, um, she, has a, <laughs> she starts with a terrible temp job folding and filing papers, which mean nothing to her. And then she gets a telegram, which is a piece of paper, which changes everything. And, and um, she is, you know, she's a translator, so the pages that she receives from the poet whose work she's translating come into her on paper. There's the books that she loves reading. There's the bookstore, which is full with books, um, which is owned by the love interest. His name is Benny. There's his literary magazine, in which her stories have appeared. There's even her daughter even writes writes um, short stories and, and reads books. So the, this book is, is full of paper, and paper has meaning. Paper has meaning for people like you and me and, and possibly the people who are listening to this um, broadcast. Uh, paper has a lot of meaning, and, 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 um, and, and so it has that resonance, the added resonance um, in, in the book, I hope. So you mentioned, you know, for for listeners who haven't read it, there's mm. kind of um, a few main characters. The main character yes. is Shira, and she is yes. a single mom yes. with a daughter, and she yes. lives with a friend, Ahmed, but they're co-parenting yes. the daughter, yes. but he's not the biological father. No. And Shira's trying to get her life together as a mom, as yeah. a, a worker, her love mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the creation of her and how I know you were doing these collected short stories about her, but what about her personality? 
what questions did you have about this person that you wanted to explore on the page? That's a really good question, and, you know, it gets straight to the heart of the book, because, well, of course, Shira is at the center of the book, but the inspiration for Shira comes straight to the heart of the book as well. And the the inspiration is a little bit obscure. I, I, I had attended a workshop and I think it was 1997 or 8, on the Song of Songs with a wonderful rabbi. His name is uh, uh, Reb Zalman Shachar Shalomi. And he taught the Song of Songs, and I read it in his, you know, in his, under his tutelage for the very first time and was very stunned by it. He, he encouraged us to read that poem, which probably everyone knows is a, a love poem, and it appears in the Bible, um, and it's very often, traditionally, it's read as an allegory for God's love of Israel or God's love of the Church, depending on which, which direction you come at the poem from. He encouraged us to also read it as a, a poem about an actual pair of lovers who um, who treat each other with enormous respect and care and love, and then that includes the, the woman as well. She has a very um, active role in her love affair, and it's, it's it's a very beautiful, sensual uh, story about, well, story, it's a very, very beautiful poem about how they they have a sacred love for each other or how they make their relationship sacred through respect and care and, 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 and physical closeness and so on. And the story just really, the, the poem really moved me a lot. It really was a poem about how a person can be both innocent and passionate at the same time and I had recently written a story about an unnamed character, um, one of the stories that was to appear and, and eventually appear in this short story collection, but an unnamed character at this point was kind of not fully formed yet, but something about the Shulamite in the poem, The Song of Songs, just reminded me of Shira when she was a teenager, which is when the story takes place. And I did I named her Shira. Shira is um, means song. It's from The Song of Songs, Shira Hashirim. So... Um, she came from this idea that that um, there, that you can be loving and passionate, but also innocent at the same time. And 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 how how can that coexist in one person? That's sort of a a major question for this novel. Um, and that that was the the very original inspiration for her. And from that came a lot of stories, starting from when she was maybe fifteen, but also looking back to some disruptive experiences when she was younger. And, uh, and then casting forward till she was a mother and and living with Ahmad and having a lot of romantic difficulties. And all the stories predate the um, the novel. And some of them end, the, the, the last story ends just before the short, before the novel begins. Because actually, <laughs> Good on Paper was meant to be the final story in that short story collection that started out. Um, I intended it to be a story and was very excited to have the idea that... Um, I might soon be finishing this collection and have a have a book to show for myself just a few years out of graduate school. And then I was at a residency and um, had a lot of time, had about seven weeks, and the story just kept growing and growing and growing. And soon it was a novella, and by the time I left, it was very clear that I was writing a novel and um, I would not be finishing that short story collection, at least not at that moment. But Shira has a lot of, there's a lot to her, and, and um, she, she had, turns out she had enough, it was enough to her and the idea of her and, and her history to, uh, to to fill a novel as well as a lot of short stories. Do you think that it was because you had these eight weeks at 
McDowell to mm. to write this and this was the one you were working on? Or do you think it was because Shira at the age of 40 was the most interesting? I, You know, I'll maybe never know. I really had hoped to write the short story, but even in its original conception, it was probably too large to be a short story. But I was pretty inexperienced writer, and I didn't know that yet. I had just written a bunch of short stories, and, and I didn't really know what a novel would feel like when it when it presented itself. And this, this idea was definitely too large to be a short story, but I just I did give it a... I did give it all my all my you know best try to make it make it short, um, but I think I think the idea that you know that I was at a residency for residency for seven weeks, which then got extended to eight weeks, which by the way is the longest period of ex- most extended period of writing time I've had in my entire life since or since or before. Um, I think having that extended period of time did allow it to become what it had to be. And it's possible that under different circumstances, I might have truncated it somehow or gone a different direction just to, excuse me, just to be able to finish it. And, and I might have chosen a simpler idea to get where I had to go. So it's, it's hard to know. I, I think it's a combination of both. I think the story had heft, but the idea, but the fact that I was at that residency and had this incredibly expansive time and space Made, made the novel possible in, in, really, in really practical terms. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Rachel Cantor, author of the novel Good on Paper. So let's talk about Shira's specific plight in, in mm-hmm. your novel. She has mm-hmm. Andy, who's five? She's seven at the start of the book, yeah. Seven. And she's in a bad temp job. She is a translator. She had some renown when she was in grad school, but hasn't really Mm. done it a while in um, Mm. Italian. And she gets this fax that this poet from Italy, Mm -hmm. who's Nobel Prize winning, wants Mm -hmm. her to translate his work. Mm -hmm. So tell me about this predicament and um, how you came to that and what did you, um, what were you trying to, to think about? Mm. Well, I, as a point of clarification, I think she probably was never really had much renown, not even in grad school. And I think, uh, her, her relationship with, with, um, translation was so uneasy that, you know, in the end it became easier for her not to translate. She kind of distrusted, she had a very uneasy relationship with the whole idea of, of communicating with other with other people, with creating intimacy with other people, and both you know both in terms of both in terms of translation, but actually in terms of her life as well. So she's she's a very underachieving translator, and this makes it all the more stunning that she gets a call from this Nobel Prize winning poet. He gives her a, a plausible reason. It's related to a work that she had done when she was in grad school, and and his work will have a relationship to that work, which is an early work of Dante called Vita Nuova, then this sounds more or less plausible to her. And so she she takes on the work and she's very excited about it. But, you know, it, <laughs> it sounds, it's good on paper, but in fact, it turns out to be a whole lot more complicated than that. And uh, she begins to realize as he begins sending her pieces of the work, and I won't give too much away, but she begins to realize that he must have some other agenda because this is not a straightforward translation assignment, and she knows enough to know that. Um, and she's got to kind of navigate 
what that means. And, and it evolves, her understanding of what he's doing evolves and, um, and, and, and starts to really challenge her. It starts to challenge everything that she believes about translation, believes about herself, believes about her future and her past. And, and, uh, and as that happens, her family relationships suffer and she's got pressure on all sides. I'm curious, as um, you've probably yeah. talked about this a lot, about the notion yeah. of, of translation. Yeah. At one point, she says, you have a whole chapter, and it, it's mm-hmm. written in Italian, but it means translation or traitor, or translator yeah. <laughs> or traitor. Translator, traitor, yeah. So we're talking about one language going into another language. And I, I think yeah. it's so fascinating that different yeah. individuals translating works could come up with mm-hmm. something so different, especially mm-hmm. when you have just an elementary la- understanding of a language like Spanish 101 mm-hmm. and you say car and it's coche and it doesn't seem <laughs> like that very, that's hard to translate, but right. <laughs> it gets so much more complicated. <laughs> it, it does. I, I have, I have enormous, enormous respect for translators and, and hopes through the book. I mean, this wasn't my purpose in writing the book, but in the writing of the book, I hope to convey something of the complexity and the difficulty of what translators do, because it's enormously difficult. I mean, there's every aspect of language, which, you know, you or I as, as writers or readers pay attention to in our native language has to be an you know object of concern for, for the translator. And there's no way that you can be 100% faithful to that original document. Because if you're if you're if you're translating the rhymes, you're going to necessarily, well, most likely, lose something of the sense. And and if you, you know, make sure that the rhythm is okay, or or you're going to have you're going to lose something of the uh, the length of the line. It just goes on, and it's especially complicated with poetry, of course, because because of all the various uh, constrictions that are, that especially formal poetry that 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 of the original. So um, it, she has to be very. Actively translating as as a as a real uh, as a real piece of work in the book, I want that to be have a you know have a, a real presence. But it's also clear that you know it has a sort of a metaphorical meaning, or it has a deeper meaning for her. And um, the carrying over of meaning from one language to another is something she just trusts because she doesn't trust intimacy. And that sort of that sort of process involves a lot of very careful listening and attentiveness and openness and and a sense of kind of a vulnerability as you allow, this is I imagine, as you allow the the author's words to become your own. And, and this is something that Shira, in her heart of hearts, can't really believe in because of her personal history and her fears and so on. Um, she can't really believe in that meaningful connection. So while translation, I hope, has a has a of a real presence in the book as an action that she undergoes as a in her in her work. It also has a has a deeper meaning and it reflects her own fears and limitations and, and concerns and, and the things that trouble her and that she has to that she has to work around and, and uh, that challenge her in this book. Well what we're talking about here is kind of mm. literal translation from one language to another. But I mm-hmm. think writing a novel is all about translation from ideas to the page. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that in your process? Mm. Well, I tend to write starting from a character and then rather than starting from an idea, and I know that sounds unlikely now that you've read the book and it seems to have a fair number of ideas in it, but really 
I saw I saw that there was a problem that I needed to address in this book, and I well that time of story I needed to move Shira and her character as it stood at the beginning of that book, which is to say at the end of the stories, and move her from point A to point Z, and had an idea of where she needed to be at the end, and how do you how do you affect that transformation through narrative, and that was the problem. I mean, it, it, that was the problem I needed to solve. It didn't feel so much like a translation of an idea so much as a kind of a grinding it out on the page and uh, and organically evolving something that would solve that problem, which also meant lots and lots and lots and lots of revision. I did I did borrow a structure which helped with that, but even that was, well, it had a certain idea behind it, which is the hero's journey, so that there's a seven-part structure to the book that follows yeah, the, the basic the basic moments of a hero's journey from call all the way to something like redemption or the journey home. And that helped me structure the book. But even that wasn't so much of an idea as it was a series of guideposts that would help me get from one point to the end. So that I think that, you know, the idea of translation, for example, and we keep returning to that, it was something she was already doing before the book began. And I saw that as an opportunity. I saw that as as, as offering rich possibilities for her to play out what needed to be played out so that she could, this transformation could take place. I'm not sure it really was a question of ideas translating into story so much as character playing out the drama of her transformation. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Rachel Cantor, author of the novel Good on Paper. Part of the search for the self for Shira Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. forgiveness. And you you open up the book with a poem by Mm -hmm. Galway Canal, and it's talking about how we have to learn that rising, sort of rising from the ashes is really Mm -hmm. about being the flames. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell me about about that idea. Oh, I love, I just love, love, love that piece. Um, you know, it connects very much with the very end of the book. I can even read the read the epigraph if you like. It's very short. Please. Um, okay. It's, it's, just a, it's a, a small section of a poem called Another Night in the Ruins from the book Body Rags. And again, it's Galway Canal. How many nights must it take one such as me to learn that we aren't, after all, made from that bird which flies out of its ashes, that for a man as he goes up in flames, his one work is to open himself, to be the flames. And I, I love that. I love the images. The images also connect with various images in the book. There's birds, there are flames in the book even. Um, so that it spoke to me of the theme of the book, which, as you say, is really about forgiveness and and. And how do you open yourself to another person to enough to be able to forgive wrongs that were done you? And and how do you do it if that person doesn't ask for forgiveness? You know, so that it, it, the book talks about doesn't talk about it, the book embodies or 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 it comes up in various ways lots of different aspects of forgiveness. You know, how do you how do you ask for forgiveness in a way that can be accepted by another person? In the end, what? But in the end, how do you how do you forgive? How do you how do you forgive if someone doesn't do the work of of asking for forgiveness? If they don't um, if they don't admit that they've done wrong? If they don't um, say they're sorry? If they don't make amends? You know, what do you do? How do you 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 live with that? And how do you move beyond it in a way that's 
It allows you to have meaningful relationships in the case of Shira. And this is the work she has to do in the novel. She has to figure out, she has to figure this out. And um, I won't say any more about whether she does or not. Um, but it's hard work. And it involves, it involves opening. And it involves being willing to be hurt. You know, being willing to be the flame. To, to, to kind of be consumed yourself um, in order to accept uh, the brokenness of another person and, and probably also your own brokenness um, so that you can love again. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's in a nutshell or very large nutshell with the, with the book is really kind of at its deepest level, I think, about. Well, let's talk about some of your influences. Can you read a passage from an author that hmm. speaks to you as a writer? Yeah, I thought long and hard about what influence is, and I find it very hard to trace specific influences um, in terms of, you know, this book or that book, but the book that came to mind, and I know you're going to laugh at me, as really actually having an effect on the writing I do, on the sentences that I write, was Strunk and White's Elements of Style. And there's a passage in there which I read when I was in high school, which was a very long time ago, and it has stuck with me ever since. It has influenced everything I've written ever since. And it's about, um, it's about concision. So it's only a few sentences long. And probably you've read it too at some point. <laughs> Vigorous writing is concise. A sentence should contain no unnecessary words, a paragraph, no unnecessary sentences. For the same reason that a drawing should have no unnecessary lines and a machine, no unnecessary parts. This requires not that the writer make all his sentences short or that he avoid all detail and treat his subjects only in outline, but that every word tell. And uh, again, I read this book in high school, which was decades ago, but it influenced everything I wrote ever since. And I guess I take pride in, in writing sentences that don't contain unnecessary words where every word tells. And it's... Um, it's uh, thanks to William Strunk Jr. and E.B. White and their elements of style. Does that um, happen it, for you in the first draft? Like, are you the type of writer where you'll go over a sentence again and again and again before you move on, or do you do that later? I write fairly fluently when I have a sense of what I want to write, and, and I don't mean that in, in a very programmatic sense of first this, then this, then this. But if I have a sense of a mood or I have a sense of an action that needs to take place, or a sense of what the character is feeling at that moment. If I'm really fully present with that, it sounds a bit mystical, but if I'm really fully present with what needs to happen, I write fairly fluently, and my sentences generally please me. It's really at the, the structural level or the level of, um, as you're saying, before, kind of distributing secrets, if you want to look at it that way, or, or um, you know, affecting that transformation from point A to point Z, where I have to go back and think, well, you know, that scene doesn't contribute to this transformation the way I'd like it to, and I maybe I need a different scene, or it the, the revision is much more likely to concern itself with structure and plot than it is with sentences. Uh, the sentences, because the book, is, my writing is so voice-driven, the voice is in my head, and um, it comes out, and for the most part, it's not in need of a lot of editing. Although that is the first—that's the first thing I will do—is is, is cut out words that, that don't need to be there. That's a that's a reflexive action at this point. 
How about if you can read something that you wrote, maybe something mm-hmm. that changed a lot from the first draft or something yeah. that you really like? I'm I'm going to read the very opening page because I rewrote the opening so many times and and I uh, I'll read you the first page and I even um made note of some original some earlier first lines and I can I can read those as well so you can see how differently how differently it's it's changed over the years. <clears throat> this is the very beginning of Good on Paper. 12,000 envelopes wanted stuffing. There were 12,000 labels to affix. Mr. Ferguson, administrative manager of Legs Are Us, had particular ideas about proportional folding and straight affliction. Affliction, Darlene asked. Affliction, I said. Never heard of that, Darlene said. Exactly, I said. Why are you whispering, Darlene asked. I was hiding in the supply closet, but Darlene didn't need to know that. You need to airlift me out of here, I said. You need to stick it out, Shira. I can't keep placing you if you keep quitting jobs. I never managed to stick. I couldn't look at the walls of the Schlock Gallery. I couldn't bear the boss who kept telling me to smile or the funny smell in the church office lunchroom. I blamed Clyde. We'd gotten together last spring as the Good Sense Flavor Factory prepared for Winter Wonderland. As a joke, the flavor text drew a holiday party, complete with an inflatable Santa and a menorah for me and the ancient receptionist. So that's the opening as it now stands. Um, It was hard for me to write. (laughs) I had so many openings that were all flawed for many reasons. Um, I think I... I knew what the book was about, so it wasn't that I needed to finish the book in order to write the beginning that belonged with the book. I just think that before I could get it right, I needed to know more about storytelling. So this first chapter now as it stands, while just being three pages long, does a lot of work. Um, It introduces Shira's ground situation and her most important conflicts, not just in this what I read, but the, the few pages that follow. And also we'll introduce her family, we'll introduce Ahmad and uh, Andy, her daughter, and tell us important things we need to know about them and also um, something about Shira's relationship with them. So the first chapter now works very hard, and earlier versions um, were much less satisfactory. Where do you write? You know, I live in a very small New York City apartment, so I have a little space in my apartment set aside for my office, but most often I work on my couch. Unless I'm very lucky and I can go to a writer's colony, which is where I've written, which which is where I wrote a lot of good on paper and a lot of other work as well. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I just walk out my front door. I I live in New York City. I I am passionately in love with this city. And every time I walk outside, it's like life begins all over again. I have uh, wonderful things to look at and to taste and to smell and to to experience and literally I only have to walk out my door and and everything is everything is new again. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? You know, it depends on the book. Um, I don't have one person and I don't have a writing group. This book went to a few different readers, mostly readers uh two of them were writers of sort of more or less realist fiction. One was a old family friend. He was actually the very first person to see the book. And 
I gave it to him because I knew he would love me, even if it turned out I didn't know how to write a book. And uh, my sister also read it because she's a good reader, and I wanted sort of a layperson's opinion. But um, other books have other readers. It really does depend on the, the sensibility of the book and who I think will be a, a good, good open, open mind for the book. And how have you dealt with rejection? <laughs> you know, trial and error, I guess. I think, you know, in the beginning, in the beginning you send out stories to literary magazines and you are crushed when they're rejected. And then you learn to be less crushed. Maybe it's just the, the, the accumulation of, of experience makes you less, makes you less um, soft or less uh, porous when it comes to that. And um, one, of, one of the things I did was I would always have uh, an idea of where I would send the story out next. You know, once it got uh, once it got rejected, I would send the story up next. But then there was always something else that would be hard. So you get used to literary magazines rejecting you, and then it becomes the residencies or it becomes the prizes. And um, I think another thing I did is to really talk myself into believing how much of a arbitrary process it can be, or how subjective the process of judging can be, um, and to try to try to believe it and to, to remind myself that my work really isn't for everybody and it's not for everybody even on a, especially when they're having a bad day or <laughs> you never kind of know what's 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 going on in, in, the, in the mind of somebody who's saying yes or no and um, and that helps so I mean over the over the years um, I think I've become more thick-skinned most rejection really truly doesn't bother me anymore I think that's basically true yeah I'm I'm disappointed when I don't get twenty thousand dollar grants, but you know, you, <laughs> that's something you learn to live with. What is your favorite word? I thought about this long and hard, and every time I thought about it, another word popped into my mind. And the word that popped into my mind just before we started our interview was actually an Italian word, and I have no idea why it popped into my mind. But it's zucchero, which means sugar, and I just I love the sound of the word. I love the verb of the word zucchero. It's just zucchero. I like it so much. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is Rachel Cantor, author of the novel Good on Paper. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.